Welcome to season two of the Everyday People podcast with me, your host, Myung Vo, all the way from London. I'm your everyday person whose mission is to give everyday people a platform to share their incredible story, learnings and life tools to inspire you to create your best life. I believe that you don't have to be famous, turn over a million a year or be in a high position to have something powerful to share and leave a positive impact on your community. I believe the only prerequisite is that you are being you and you are living the amazing life that is in alignment with you. That is enough to inspire me to go live my best life. Will you join me on this journey of sharing, learning and living alongside everyday people? Welcome to episode one of season two of Everyday People podcast. Today I have Natasha Evans who works in tech as an account manager and a nutritionist. Welcome, Tash. Hi, nice to be here. So lovely to have you here. Let's talk about how we first met. Yeah, at a party just before lockdown. It's just um, one of those times when you meet someone and immediately you have things in common and you just click. We were both reading The Secret at the time, weren't we? And I remember this light bulb moment going off in my head when I read the book. So it's all about the law of attraction and what you put out into the world, you get back. It is definitely a bit too simplistic in a lot of senses. Like it kind of implies that you can sit on the sofa and think positively and good things will come your way, but it doesn't really talk about, you know, what you need to do to get there and the personal responsibility. So I think it is a little bit simplistic, but still, I thought thought it was really quite impactful. And certainly since reading that book, it sent me on that journey of exploring like, you know, manifestation a little bit more. Yeah. Wow. No, I agree with what you said. If I read it two years ago, I wouldn't understand it, but when you understand it is when you know the limitations of it and the other factors that come into it and your role in it as well, like Mm -hmm. you say. Well, I think one of the main things that I read from it that I really loved was when she talked about how the life that you have right now is all because of you, everything that you manifested through your thinking. So everything that you have in front of your face right now, your job, the partner, the friends, is your creation you need to be aware of what you do now. Every little thing that you do now adds up to that future life that you're going to live. If you think to yourself, I'm never going to be as successful as that person or I'm never going to lose weight or whatever it might be, you probably won't. Yeah. So yeah, mindset, it's just so important, isn't it? So I want to get into it. So why do you choose to live in London? Well, I spent all my life here. So I'm a Londoner by heart. um, And I really do think it is the best city in the world. It's got everything you want. The culture is so rich. There's so much you can do. It has the best art galleries. It has the best music scene. The culinary scene is incredible. The people you meet are so diverse. Even though I've lived here all my life, I still find new things Mm. the whole time. I mean, having said that, I'm definitely getting some London or big city fatigue. Starting to get a little bit of a craving for some bit more green space. Um, We're quite lucky to have quite a lot of green spaces here. What's like a green space that you really enjoy visiting? This old park is amazing. It's just great for people watching. It's great for dog watching. I've been around the corner and there's this cemetery park. We don't have that back in Australia, so I always find those places fascinating. The best one is Highgate Cemetery and Karl Marx's grave is there and quite a few other famous graves are there. Wow. My podcast cover photo was actually taken at a cemetery as well, by the way. No way. Yeah, they had like a gorgeous building that was my backdrop. Dark. <laughs> Can you tell us what world you were born into compared to the world that you are living in right now or the world that you have created for yourself? So 
I have a Thai mother and a Welsh father. Growing up as um, a mixed race kid was quite confusing for me. I grew up in southwest London and it's a very white area. So even if you are Asian um, or any sort of other minority, you do stand out quite a lot. I always felt quite um, insecure about that. And I didn't celebrate my uh, ethnicity as much as I should have done, I don't think. Lots of kids do feel that they just want to fit in. When you're young, you just want to fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, And looking different meant that I never felt like I fully fit in. So I do things to try and fit in. I'd maybe make change my appearance slightly to make me, myself look a little bit more white. How do you think it affected your relationships with your friends and your family? I never actually voiced it to any of them, didn't voice it to my friends, didn't voice it to my family. So this probably comes as a surprise to them. And no one ever treated me differently, actually, because of my race. But it was just something that I felt internally. Mm. It How- meant I was always kind of a people pleaser because... Um, I wanted to fit in and be liked so much. So I've changed a lot over the years because I'm definitely not that anymore. Things have changed a lot now. But when we were growing up, what you'd see on TV or you'd see in the media, you'd always see white people, basically. Even if you don't watch Friends or whatever and think, I'm not represented on there, it does play into your subconscious. Yes. So all these messages you're fed from a really young age start to tell you that you don't really fit in Mm. um, and that you're not worthy or as good as the people you see on screen. You can never be that. Your perception of beauty is kind of warped. You know, you see beauty as just being white and thin. So I don't think I thought I was beautiful until like three years ago, wow. which is really sad. There was no like turning point where I was like, oh my gosh, that beautiful Asian woman's on TV. So I feel beautiful now, but it happens so gradually over the years. And this is why representation is so important, you know, like body positivity and the diversity of bodies you get on screen, the diversity of sexualities, the diversity of skin types, skin colors colors even if you don't consciously watch thinking now I'm represented it plays to your subconscious and it helps you feel a little bit more belonging and self-worth um recently there was a program on tv and I think it was celebrating 20 years of Darren Brown at the end of the show he had this woman come on stage and there were like four cups of different colors and underneath one of those cups was a nail and he was like you need to guess which cup the nails under Mm -hmm. and she got the right cup it was the red cup And then he turns to the audience and he says, did you guess it was the red cup? Um, You probably did. And this is why. And he goes back through the whole episode and he shows how he dropped hints about red in all these different areas through the TV show. And most people watching would have guessed the red cup. But that just shows you how to be influenced in a one and a half hour TV program. But imagine if it's like a whole lifetime of that, where you're not seeing yourself. It affects us as an Asian, but it also affects white people who don't see us. And then so they continue to not see us or continue to not be familiar with us. What we consume, what we watch, what we listen to, who we give the time to, what podcast we listen to really shapes our world. And if you're not diversifying that, then, yeah, there's gaps. So on Instagram, I make sure that I follow people with different dietary beliefs to me yeah like the carnivore diet or the vegan diet I don't agree with either of them really they normally have pretty good science backing up those Mm. um, beliefs you've got to have diversity in your feed so if you're seeing the same views again and again that's like you know just one of the things that just contributing to these incredibly like polarized views yeah there was a Netflix documentary that talks about this as well the social dilemma I've been a social media skeptic for absolutely years I actually quit social media for about three years 
Um, I'm back on it now, mostly for business reasons. So I find it really interesting that now you have an Instagram page where you post the food that you cook and nutrition advice that you've learned. I feel like you're trying to create an impact. I feel good reading it or I feel inspired. Yeah, let's talk about what got you into doing this project and wanting to spread your message. I'm so glad you like it because I was so anxious about launching my Instagram because I hadn't been on Instagram for three years and I didn't really enjoy the platform. It made me feel quite bad about myself, both in terms of body image and also what I was eating. And But I'd taken a big break and come back to it with fresh outlook and a new perspective and um, a new challenge. And that was, you know, I've qualified as a nutritionist and I need a page where people can look me up if they want to see a little bit more about what I'm about. And everyone does that now before paying for a service. I'll look them up on social media. So set up this page, really anxious, posted my first picture and then felt this wave of relief. It was like pulling off a band-aid. We have stayed in contact pretty much through Instagram, which is amazing. And I've met so many other people in the health industry through Instagram and building these amazing relationships with doctors, dietitians, like, you know, you know, all these people in the health industry. And then also, you know, other people who just want nutrition advice and who are inspired by what I'm posting. And I just, it's, it's so amazing to see that. And what I'm trying to do in my nutrition business as well is try and encourage a better dialogue and better relationship with food. Because I think that one thing that's happened with the internet and with social media as well is that we've become scared of food as a population because health messages and you know what food is healthy, what's not, it's always changing. You get these really clickbaity titles where they've taken a small finding from a really badly conducted research paper and blown it completely out of control. And now we don't know what to eat. And like, there's this real fear around food, especially with women. And I really just wanted to encourage food positivity. So we've got body positivity now. Now it's moving to body neutrality, which is good. But this food positivity thing, and I really want people to just have the relationship that I have with food, which is a relationship of love rather than fear. And not viewing foods as good or bad, but just thinking about how nutritious food is as well. It's all about balance. With my clients, I will never say stop eating brownies. They do bring you joy or like stop drinking alcohol entirely. Look, alcohol is a toxin. That is true. But there's also research to suggest that having some drinks with your friends and the amazing connection that is like so good for your mental health. So it's not black and white. Um, it's all about balance and it's all about creating a really individualized protocol for someone. Did this thinking come from your studies or is it a mix of what you studied and what you experienced yourself? Before I started, uh, I studied nutrition, I was very confused by what's healthy and what's not. Can you remember when you first learned about whether a food might be healthy or not? For me, it was probably when I was around 14. You know, up until then, I just ate whatever I wanted to. And I went to a school in London, which is actually well known for its eating disorders. And then around the age of 14, that's when things started to happen at the school, you know. And that's when I was first introduced to the notion of a calorie. I'd never heard the word before. But suddenly I was at, I was at lunch and we were very privileged. Incredible food. I'd had my starter, my main, I was on my third dessert. You know, I remember just someone mentioning how the concept of a calorie and how many calories there must be in that cake. And I was like, what? 
I never developed an eating disorder. I think I did have some disordered eating beliefs or mm. habits. But like, you know, if you are worrying about how many calories are in something, if you've cut out a whole food group because you're worried about how healthy it is, if you feel guilty after eating a piece of chocolate cake, those are all disordered eating habits. And most mm. women have at least one um, disordered eating habit. And it's so sad. Up until like, when I st- first started studying nutrition, I think I probably had about six years where I, where I was sort of, like worried about food. Um, Mm. and what I was eating and now I just don't worry about it anymore and it's really really liberating. Back home every time we have dinner there's always rice there's a stir fried dish something that's fried and there's always a soup with some greens in it so every time we have dinner it just seems balanced. Lucky you. (laughs) So I feel like whenever my routine like my busy routine it means I eat bad food or I eat out the way to get back to my healthy natural diet is to just think about what my mum cooked and I'll cook that. There's something to be said there as well for our genetics. To get healthy, you go back to your roots. Yeah. And that's probably actually a very wise thing to do because you have the genes, enzymes, and probably bacteria that are best suited for that cuisine, yeah. most likely. So for example, one thing that's really taken off recently is seaweed as a, like a health food. Mm. And it is very healthy. But one study showed that Japanese people have the bacteria that produce these enzymes that can digest the seaweed and then you can get all the amazing nutrients from it. But Americans don't have it. So they might be, you know, eating all this seaweed and having um, sushi and all that kind of thing or like having the seaweed snacks, but lots of them will not actually possess those bacteria. To, that is so yeah. interesting because you yeah. know what? During lockdown, I ate a lot of bread and I don't usually eat a lot of bread and yeah. I started to feel really bloated. So slowly I've cut, I don't cut out the bread completely but I don't eat bread every day anymore yeah because my body's not used to it the biggest ever nutrition study that's been done is called the China study so this was done on I think it was a very significant proportion of the Chinese population it's a really comprehensive study and it was basically to try and find which foods are healthy and which foods are unhealthy and basically it came out that you shouldn't eat any dairy the evidence was very very clear from that data then lots of people took the China study and said, oh, I must cut out dairy because it's bad for me. But you can't extrapolate something from the Chinese population to the rest of the world because Chinese people don't eat dairy. They don't really eat milk or cheese or anything like that. So no wonder most of them are intolerant to it and they react badly to it. But you can't take the China study and apply it to the UK or the US or anything like that. Hey, it's Annie Louie here, co-producer of the Everyday People podcast and Nung's first ever guest. We are super excited because season two has been made possible thanks to the support of our brand new sponsor, Alchemy Construct. If you haven't heard of them, Alchemy Construct is an innovative commercial construction company in Melbourne who have worked on massive projects like the Royal Melbourne Hospital, RMIT University, and now this podcast. To find out more about their work, head to alchemyconstruct.com or feast your eyes on their beautiful Instagram page at Alchemy Construct. Now let's get back to the juicy stuff. So going back to your relationship with food and your body image, what are some food habits that you've had and how did you overcome it? I definitely would have been that sort of person in the past who would eat some cake and then feel guilty about it. And I really do think it was actually just um, my education that helped me get over it. Not that everyone needs to do a four-year degree, but you need to find someone who can actually analyse all the scientific data and present it to you in, in a useful way rather than all this crap that you see online basically you know what I learned is that stressing about eating a slice of cake 
is doing more harm to your body than just eating a slice of cake oh and moving gosh, on with your life. Oh my gosh, that's so true. Yeah, stress is so bad for you. When you stress, your body only has one stress response. Your body goes into fight or flight. Our stress response is incredibly useful and it used to get us away from danger when we were like running from a tiger back in the old days. But now this stress response is triggered all the time by modern life, by when you cross the road, um, when you argue with your partner, when you eat a slice of cake. Because the stress response is so energy intensive to get you away from the tiger. It pumps blood to your muscles, your pupils get larger, your heart rate goes up. And non-essential things like your digestive system just shut down. So people who are stressed tend to be more constipated. There are studies that show that they might absorb more calories from food, exactly Mm. the same food you absorb more calories from it. You know, high stress is just linked to so many chronic diseases and, you know, being unwell. So basically eat the cake and move on with your life and have a good time. Enjoy it. (laughs) That's my motto. Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) But it's all about moderation. And Yeah, it was actually during lockdown that I also learned the things that's happening in your body that you think you don't need to think about. For example... Your stomach does the work, break down the food, and you don't have to think about it. It just happens. Mm-hmm. But when you stress, it can just stops. slow it down or it can stop. Yeah, it just you know? stops. And, I, and you don't think that that could happen because yeah. you never had to think about it. But definitely, you know, being in a new country, I go through anxiety and stress. And I, I only realised that my bloating recently, because I've never been bloated back in Australia, could be due to the fact that I feel some anxiety. Although I think my stomach's working, maybe it's not working when I'm stressed because when I'm stressed, I actually feel so tense. My whole body feels tense. So I would not be surprised when some parts of my body are just really slow. So bloating is a really common side effect of stress. Um, And it's because of this gut-brain connection. So our gut and our brain are constantly in dialogue with each other, um, mostly via uh, a pathway called the vagus nerve, but um, lots of other ways as well. So lots of people, uh, you know, they'll try all these dietary interventions to try and get rid of their bloating, and it just doesn't go away. And that's because often it's the stress. So sometimes like these really small changes can make a really big difference. Like getting someone to take 10 full, deep breaths before consuming a meal, that can actually change it (laughs) and sometimes it's not the answer people want to hear you know they come they pay to see a nutritionist and then rather than saying here's your new dietary plan they say take 10 deep breaths before your meal and they're like no (laughs) yeah but it's so impactful or just like you know meditation breath work yoga all these other things you can do to try and de-stress it's really important I keep talking about bloating (laughs) but it's been like such a big issue in my life in London you know I was trying to figure out like is it the water here should I not be drinking from the tap is it the bread is it this is it that you know I'm trying to figure out what it is but ultimately I'm like I really think it's the stress and it makes so much sense and now I really just focus on not the food element but more just calming myself down and you know, yeah. do some reading or have some time to myself. Yeah, I yeah. think it works. I start burping. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's not just sitting inside me anymore. What advice would you give to your younger self? Don't be afraid to be who you are and explore who you are, figure out who you are. Don't let other messages tell you who you are, mm. um, both in terms of your race or your gender and anything else. Don't be afraid of what people might think of you, whether it's your family or friends, just 
um, you know, if they're right for you, then they'll love you no matter what. So I think um, I was so always so concerned about my image that I only really started discovering who I really was and my true personality and everything, probably age 24 onwards. <laughs> I've heard this quote where the message is basically, you need to define yourself before someone else defines you. But you know what? It is so hard when we're bombarded with all these messages from the media. And as I mm. say, the Darren Brown effect, you don't think you're being influenced by all these things, but to not be influenced by those things it's really like swimming upstream and you can get there but it just takes a really long time for my podcast I usually like my guests to bring in a book to talk about because I love learning like we all do right so tell us what book you brought in I've brought in the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen R Covey and this is a book that I picked up this year. My partner, who I've been with for seven years, he's always said this is his favourite book and it's taken me seven years to get around to reading it. <laughs> it's so good. I think the reason why I put it off for so long is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. My view of what effective was, was like performing well at work. But actually what this book is about, it's like seven lessons and habits you can adopt to be a good person. And obviously then that will translate into your work, but also into all other areas of your life. And I just thought yeah. it was amazing. The first habit, um, which is be proactive. I really, really liked it. Again, it's not proactive how you think about being proactive, which is like do, do, do at work. The way he views proactivity is like being proactive rather than reactive. Mm. You are control of things within your control and focus on those things. And then he also refers to um, Viktor Frankl's idea of there being a gap between stimulus and response. And in that gap, you have the power to choose. I was reading it and I was thinking, the one area where it doesn't really work, I think, because it's just, bit just saying that stop blaming other things for your problems. Yeah, I know that lots of things are within my control. But again, it's like uh, the media it. is a really big force. So when we go back to the whole thing of race or gender or wealth, you know, whatever it might be, you can't control all those things that are going on externally to you. And it takes a lot of strength to battle those messages. Yes. And obviously things are changing now. But I think him being a white male and having certain privileges, yeah, maybe he hasn't taken that into account as much. Yeah, I totally get what you're yeah. saying. Because it's something that I battle with myself as well. When I think about how society has influenced the way I live my life or the opportunities that I have, it's one, to acknowledge it and talk about it or two, hide it and get on with my life, like a lot of people tell me. But I think there is something important about acknowledging it and talking about it because there's other people that go through it as well. And if you're not processing it and talking about it, I don't know how healthy that is either. Can I tell you about my favourite habits? Yes, do. So my favourite habit is habit number five, and that's seek first to understand and then to be understood. Ugh. Right. And it's all <laughs> about empathic communication. So communication is undoubtedly the most important skill we need to learn. And if you think about it, we learn how to read, we learn how to write, we even learn how to speak sometimes in like public speaking and that kind of thing. When do we ever learn how to listen? This was actually one of my New Year's resolutions this year, and that was to get better at empathic listening. It's like most people listen to another person with the intent to respond, yes. and they're already thinking how it relates to their life, and they say, oh, I totally, <laughs> that happened to me too. And they tell an example that's like completely different. You know, remove the ego, really try and understand what that person is saying. And it transforms your personal relationships. It transforms your work relationships. It's amazing for me in clinic because someone comes into you and they talk to you for an hour, and you really try and understand like what their problem is, rather than putting your own views on diet 
and lifestyle and that thing on that person you have to put yourself into that person's shoes and really try and understand that like a lot more you know I just love it oh I love that like finally last year it was one of my resolutions to be a better listener and I was practicing that with my podcasting (laughs) yeah I was gonna say as a podcast host like you gotta be good at that and I think you are good at it oh thank you I want to go into five quick questions to finish off great My first question for you is, since being on your nutrition journey, what is a new fruit or veggie that you love? You know what? It's not a new veggie or anything, but potatoes get a very bad rep. Um, It's a white carbohydrate and some people are like, oh, I won't touch it because it's a carb and that kind of thing. I love white potatoes. I think they're delicious. And, you know, there are better ways to cook them. So you can cook them, you know, with the skin on so that it's got a bit more fibre um, you can cook them with with a bit of fat to slow the increase in blood sugar and have them with some protein. It's all about, you know, combining foods, have the potatoes with something else to reduce that spike in blood sugar. And also, fun fact, if you cook the white potatoes, let them cool, and then you can either eat them cool or reheat them again. But once you let them cool, that changes the chemical structure of the potato mm. and reduces the impact on your blood sugar. So potato salad, a classic British dish, is quite a good way to eat potatoes, actually. What is your favourite self-care? tip okay gosh I've got so many I've got like a whole self-care list of things that I just look at sometimes and I just think okay which one I'm gonna do today to make me feel better um one thing I'm really liking at the moment is cold showers yeah so I don't do a full cold shower because it's very difficult but at the end of my shower I put it on cold for 30 seconds to a minute it's just so good for you, you know, like it increases your blood flow it's a stressor that's actually good for you uh like exercise or exposure to heat like saunering and it's been linked with um reduction in um severity and incidence of a number of chronic diseases is there any mantras that you have sometimes when I'm anxious or something I'll just say you are safe you are loved that kind of thing I mean, I say that when I'm walking home at like 11 p.m. <laughs> you were safe, Nyong. No, nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to be home fine. Like, I mean, if you think about it, like when you're anxious, that's your stress response going off again. And the stress response was originally to get us away from danger. So by telling yourself something like you are safe, mm. it can actually switch from your um, sympathetic to parasympathetic nervous system and switch on that relaxation response maybe a little bit more. I like that. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to add that to my vocab. Yeah. What's a new interest that you have? Breathwork would be another one. Well, I think actually when I first met you, Nyung, I told you about um, the breathwork class I went to last December, which was life-changing. Honestly, we've all got this free tool within us, which is our breath, and it's incredibly powerful. I find it hard actually to follow a meditation routine, but I would sit and breathe like normal and appreciate each breath. And that's enough to even make me feel more relaxed. So that's how I do my breathwork. Nice. A random question to finish off. What is the silliest thing that you've done? (laughs) I once in Thailand took part in a Muay Thai boxing match just to get a free bucket of alcohol and I got beaten to a pulp. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Was another woman at least? It was, but she really went for it. All right. Thank you so much for being my first episode guest. You've just listened to the Everyday People podcast with Nyung Vo. You can find out more about Tash via Instagram at NE Nutrition and LinkedIn. Listen to more episodes of the Everyday People podcast with inspiring everyday people on iTunes or Spotify.